You are now tuned in to the Trill Munger Podcast, hosted by Dominic D. Breeze Brown, alongside co-hosts Josh Arthur X and Mike Hargrove, aka Stargrove. Content that'll feed the streets. If you wanna know that you know that you know, it's all going down only on the Trill Munger Podcast, y'all. What's going on, good people? It's your boy Dom. We are here, finally. With Trillmonger, the podcast. I am so happy you all are here to see the first episode. You all have been waiting on this for a while, so I'm very glad that you're here with us. Um, we have a very special guest, which I'll introduce in a little while. Um, I know you all are used to it being three of us in studio, but this is actually a surprise podcast. Uh, the the fellow with us today uh, hit me up and let me know he was in town because we were actually supposed to start this podcast next week but when he told me he was in town i was like man we got to get you on and so i literally came in and set this up and hey we about to get to it um but overall mike is still uh here grinding star grove he's out building gmg uh music group uh doing a fine job of it um josh arthur just got a new job so congrats to josh um uh those guys will be back next week but uh, we just want to thank you all once again for tuning in to Trillmonger, the podcast. We got a dope, dope, dope season coming up for you all. Um, you'll be able to listen to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, all major platforms uh, with Ustream Live. Um, so shout out to, to the guys helping us with this. Um, but without further ado, I'll introduce our guest, the man, the myth, the legend. Today we have with us Dr. Emmett Riley. He is the assistant professor of Africana Studies at DePaul University. Um, me and this guy have been friends for a few years. Um, when he told me he was in town, I had to have him on because, as I told you all with Trillmonk, over the last few months, you all have probably gotten used to us doing music and having events and, and having fun, which we'll continue to do. But whatever I do, I always try to make sure there's a little bit of knowledge in it also so we can move together as people um, and as a community. So we want to thank you, Dr. Emmett, for coming on with us today. And thank you for having me. It's uh, glad to be here, and I appreciate the invitation to come on. And appreciate all the good work that you are doing and you're continuing to do to uplift the community and to promote your brand. Mm -hmm. So definitely, uh, congratulations on all of that. So I also must shout you out. You are a native Mississippi man, just that's, like me. That's right. That's right. Tell the people where you're from. You're from Itabina, Mississippi. From, as we call it, Itabina, <laughs> Mississippi, a.k.a. home in the woods. Uh, uh, born and raised in the Mississippi Delta. Have Mississippi in my blood. Mm -hmm. So I am a proud Mississippian. Okay. Well, like, you know, I love to keep the Mississippi strong in whatever we do. As I told you before, the other guys aren't here, but we are an all-Mississippi cast. We're here in Atlanta, but, you know, we're trying to still make the takeover happen. So, once again, we definitely have to have you with us. And I'm glad, you know, with you being our first guest, that you are a hometown guy because that just me makes the connection even that much more special. Oh, absolutely. Um, so, tell the people a little bit about growing up in Itabina, Mississippi. Like, what was that like? Well, I grew up in Itabina, Mississippi. Mm -hmm. It's a small town, about 2,000 people. I uh, was raised in a single-parent home. My mom, uh, Mrs. Johnny Riley, raised me. Uh, I was educated in the public school system there. Part uh, of the public school, baby. That's right, that's right. <laughs> uh, LaFleur County High School, class of 2004, as we said, LaFleur's greatest. LaFleur County. And so uh, growing up in a small town, um, it, it's quite interesting when you grow up in an impoverished community and then mm -hmm. you leave. Mm -hmm. uh, because I never grew up 
feeling like I was impoverished mm-hmm. or grew up feeling like I was missing something. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I left and then I was able to return. You, it actually sink yeah. in that you grew up in this environment. Right. It was you know, normal to you. Right. It was normal. So it was normal that we only had one grocery store. It was normal that um, the, the doctors were 30 minutes away. And if you mm-hmm. wanted to go to professional services for health care treatment, you had to go to Jackson, <laughs> you know, which was an hour away. Right. Um, so these were normal elements. But I never, n- ever sort of thought about that I grew up mm-hmm. poor. Yeah. Um, and so I... Uh, Attended LaFleur County High School, graduated in 2004. Then it was a question about where I would go to college. I went across the street to Mississippi Valley State University. Mm-hmm. Uh, my grandparents uh, had always had significant roots with Valley. In mm-hmm. fact, when they left Wildwood Plantation in 1958 oh, wow. uh, to migrate to Itabina from uh, Tutwiler, Mississippi, <laughs> they, uh, right, <laughs> these little small towns, they, their first employment was mm-hmm. at Mississippi Valley. My okay. great-grandfather worked as a carpenter. Mm-hmm. Uh, my grandmother was employed there at, in the laundry services for more than 30 years. Mm-hmm. She retired to my grandfather as well. And so I attended Mississippi Valley. Uh, I graduated from Valley with a degree in English and political science. And then I, um, there was a question about graduate school. I think black people, we have a unique experience <laughs> about yeah. we don't, most of us don't have the luxury of not working and going mm-hmm. to school. So right. I, I had to teach by day and go to school by night. Yeah, it's, it's understood for most of us. Yeah. And right. so I, uh, in fact, I almost went to Mississippi State for grad work, but their program wouldn't permit me to work. Oh, so man. I ended up going to Jackson State where okay. I would teach in Greenwood. And then by night, I would drive to Jackson Ooh. to attend class and drive back to the Delta. And I did that now for that's two. Impressive. Yeah, and I did wow. that for two years uh, until I finished my master's in political science. And by that time, I knew I wanted to do a PhD. Mm-hmm. It was a question about where I would go, and so I decided I, I really didn't want to leave Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And so I had been accepted to the University of Michigan. I had been accepted to Ohio State. Mm-hmm. Some top tier yeah, programs. Top programs, man. Yeah. And I set up for Ole Miss, an unranked program. <laughs> and we'll, we'll I forgive you for that one as a Mississippi State graduate. Yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah right. Don't let me get Aaron Rollins started. Uh, oh, and, and it's interesting. Aaron was at Mississippi State working on his uh-huh. PhD as an Ole Miss alum oh, yeah. the same time I was at Ole Miss. And so I went to Ole Miss, uh, did a PhD in uh, political science with a, a specialization in American politics. Mm-hmm. Specifically, my focus was uh, the United States Congress as a mm-hmm. political institutions but I was also always intrigued by the question of race Mm -hmm. and so because I had attended Jackson State (laughs) I was able to write a research agenda into that program which did not focus on race Mm -hmm. but I was able to write that research into my Uh, studies because I knew the literature and so I finished there, and I started teaching at Coma Community College. Mm-hmm. Uh, once I finished my PhD, I was in Mississippi about a year, and then I was hired as a visiting professor of political science at DePaul University mm-hmm. in Greencastle, Indiana. So that's how you got to Indiana. That's how I got to Indiana, <laughs> and it, and, it, and, it, and it was a risk. Mm-hmm. I knew I didn't want to be at a community college as a, with a per, as a person with a PhD, and so there was a position open for a one-year position, no guarantee that it would turn mm-hmm. into anything else. Right. At the end of the year, your contract would be over. So I came to DePaul and my visiting ship turned into a tenure track offer. Oh man. And so by December of that That's year, want, right? I, well, that was exactly <laughs> what I wanted. And by December of that year, it was I had landed a tenure track position. Uh, it was a, a salary that was competitive, a research mm-hmm. budget that awed me. Okay. And so the rest has been history. And so mm-hmm. I'm uh, I've been at DePaul for the last six years. 
in terms of what I do there, I teach Africana studies. So I teach the introduction mm -hmm. to Africana studies, but I also teach everything that I teach is political science. Mm -hmm. I teach identity politics. I teach race politics. I teach legislative process. Mm -hmm. I teach race politics. And these are uh, all very important, like, yes. you know, foundations of a lot of things that people don't realize. Oh, yeah, so, absolutely. Amenable. And I think with me, um, I actually must brag on you for a second because you're one of the guys I learned a lot from on the political science side. Um, you and one of my other mentors, Detrick. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, sociologist. So, yeah, <laughs> so, you know, I went to college with Detrick, and, yeah. like, you know, he's a doctor now, and, you know, I think he just got a job at uh, UT. UT yeah. Exactly. So, you know, it's been cool to see you guys progress. Mm -hmm. And I remember, and Detrick will probably tell you this, but, like, he was a, he was a, you know, we're both alphas, you know, so we know the inner workings of, you know, our organization, but he was one of uh, the older brothers that kind of looked out for us, and he would always talk to me about race and politics and different things like that, and when I was younger, like, I don't want to hear this shit, like, you know, I'm in college, I'm trying to have fun, like, I'm done, like, Dedrick, why are you talking about this stuff, you right. know, um, but as I got older, like, all the things that he would say or all the things that he would tell me would literally come back either in life situations, um, and I realized, like, literally there's no way out out of politics. Like, mm -hmm. it's, it's in everything. Um, and so just growing up, maturing a little bit and looking back on some of the things that he would tell me in college, kind of like, man, like, if I was like that, you know, and I had the chance to learn a little bit and to come out of that shell of, of ignorance in, in a lot of ways, um, it definitely made me into the person I am today. So right. I commend uh, you guys for doing what you do, for being impressionable. And that's one of the reasons I actually invited you onto the show today because with all of the political things going on in today's world, um, a lot of people don't understand it. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah, yes. and, and you're one of the people that I felt like could come on the show. And yes, we're about creativity. Yes, we're about music. And yes, we're all about things. But we're about real life also. Right. And with the election coming up this, this next year, y you know, it's been a lot of stuff going on. And some people are on the sidelines. And some people are, you know, kind of trying to be as involved as possible. So you have very polar opposites when it comes to, to politics. Um, so... One of the reasons I wanted you to come on today is we want to talk about the importance of the black vote in this political process. And just gen generally asking that question, like, to you, what is the black vote? Because you hear people say that all the time. Like, what is the black vote? How powerful is it? And, like, what can we do with it here in the United States? Yeah. So when we talk about uh, the black vote within the context of studying uh, political behavior, mm -hmm. we're talking about how do black voters behave in the aggregate? Mm -hmm. That is, say, for example, the percentage of blacks that live in Fulton County. Mm -hmm. How do they typically vote? Yeah. While we understand that blacks are not monolithic, there is deep complexity within the black community mm -hmm. in terms of how we who we decide to vote for mm -hmm. our political identity, our political ideology and how those ideologies may be radical or non-radical. So when we, when we refer to the black vote, I think people are talking about that. Mm -hmm. In terms of the black vote as it relates to um, the American political electorate, mm -hmm. the black vote is essential to the Democratic Party's success mm -hmm. on a presidential election mm -hmm. uh, or in a presidential year. I think that when we think about... Um, the governor's race in Alabama. Mm -hmm. It was African-American women who propelled Doug Jones to victory. Yeah. When we think about the election, the re-election of the Democratic governor in Louisiana, mm -hmm. it was the black voters who in, in Louisiana who propelled them to victory. Mm -hmm. When you think about the black vote right here in Atlanta, it mm -hmm. was the black vote who, who razor yeah. thin, 
because yeah. of gentrification and all the yeah, shit that's we going on around that, that, so that propel yeah that propel Keisha Bottoms to her mayorship. So the black vote has been essential to uh, political representation for black people. Now, mm-hmm. when we talk about political representation, what are we talking about? Mm-hmm. There's descriptive representation. <laughs> that is the degree to which a candidate shares the race, ethnicity, or gender of the people that they represent. Mm-hmm. So Keisha Bottoms descriptively represent African-American women here in Atlanta. Right. Barack Obama descriptively represented black folk nationally. Mm-hmm. And then there is substantive representation, which is the degree to which a representative actually pursue policies that benefit the interest of the communities that they represent. Mm-hmm. And so if we think about some of the important work that has been done within the continent, this is the professor coming out of me now, that, that's been done. <laughs> like in politi- stood up in your chair a little right. bit. <laughs> that's been done in political science. We, we look to individuals like um, Claudine Gay, who talks about the black descriptive representation inherently increases trust and political engagement in institutions. Mm-hmm. And so we think about if a black person is running, you're more likely to get high turnout if it's their first time running. Mm-hmm. So the black vote is essential to uh, the Democratic Party success, and I think the black vote is 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 essential has essentially defined mm-hmm. the Democratic nominee in the Democratic Party that's happening now. Now let me stop you there because I want to interject. Um, because one of the things I've heard from the streets, you know, um, we we talk to a lot of people, mm-hmm. and one thing I found dealing with younger people is that they don't feel like the Democratic Party takes their vote seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, what could you say to young people that you know because I, as a 34-year-old man, often do feel like the Democratic Party doesn't do enough to garner the black vote how they should because they're used to us automatically voting for Mm -hmm. them. So what would be your mindset on things like that? So uh, if we're thinking about how do we define black interests, what does the black agenda look like, where it has the Democratic Party historically stood as it relates to that agenda, mm-hmm. and how might that agenda usher its way through a legislative chamber, mm-hmm. given the balance of power or, or, or lack thereof between the two right. major political parties, those are all important factors to consider. Mm-hmm. I do think o- that the Democratic Party has historically taken the black vote for granted. Mm-hmm. But the question becomes, what is the consequence mm-hmm. of black voters sitting out an election? Mm-hmm. Let's say, for example, the Democratic Party has taken black voters' vote for granted. But in the process, there have been incremental change. Mm-hmm. The American Affordable Health Care Act. You've gotten, um, I was about to say, a Supreme Court justice. <laughs> like, we can talk about Clarence Thomas. But we'll go to our alpha brother, Shade. Thurgood Marshall. <laughs> check, check. Uh, or we'll at least say, let's talk to our sister, Sonia Sotomayor. Yeah. Those those are also benefits for Mm -hmm. the black community Mm -hmm. who sits on the court, Mm -hmm. who's hearing cases about voting rights, Mm -hmm. who's hearing cases about employment discrimination. Mm -hmm. And so while the question then becomes, how do we then measure Mm -hmm. what's taken for granted? Gotcha. And then do we have the same energy of organizing at the local level that we do at the presidential level? And I'll give you an example of that. Mm -hmm. When Kamala Harris announced she's running for president, oh, people came up. Oh, she locked <laughs> black parents up. She did this for trans officers. She was terrible this year. And yet, if you ask these same black people, what is the position of your local prosecutor mm-hmm. on prosecuting marijuana sentences? Right. The overwhelming majority mm-hmm. of them are still locking black folks up. Very you know important because right. that's what most of us are in jail for. Exactly. Yeah. So the question we have as, as black voters, we are very strategic. Mm-hmm. We're very pragmatic. But I also think that sometimes we get lost in the rhetoric 
in a way that that isn't really that doesn't really square with the reality. Mm-hmm. I mean, politics is messy. It it, is. It's, it's it's a slow process. Yeah. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, what do we owe our children? What mm-hmm. do we owe the generation before? Mm-hmm. And if we are the generation that is going to be so arrogant to say that we're not going to vote for anybody because we're mm-hmm. not getting anything, yeah. and then you get a Supreme Court case as worse as Shelby County handed down, yeah. we have nobody to blame but ourselves. Yeah. You know, to that degree. Very and true. I don't like blaming black people for <laughs> the plight because the way in which white supremacy work is that mm-hmm. there are multiple layers before we get to always oh, all on black folks. Right. Yeah. You know. And that's what a lot of people miss. Um, I think that's one of the things that frustrates me when people don't tell the whole story. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's okay, yeah, we do all have responsibility to do our part, but at the same time, what factors are going into the outcome? Like mm-hmm. what factors are going into why people don't want to vote? What factors are going into, you know, because like even here in Georgia, you know, last election cycle, we had a lot of voter suppression. We had a lot of, right. you know, things that should be going on that, you know, weren't. Um, so with that being said, we're going to run a clip right quick um, from the Democratic primaries that are going on right now. It's pretty much down to two candidates for mm-hmm. the most part, uh, Joe Biden and, and, and Bernie Sanders. So give us just a second and we'll run that clip. On Tuesday, six states are up for grabs with Michigan, of course, being the biggest prize. The campaign is now a clear two-man contest between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. Both of them are out campaigning hard this weekend, and ABC's Rachel Scott is out with them in St. Louis with more. Good morning, Rachel. Mary, good morning. Just last week, Joe Biden lagged behind his rivals in fundraising and advertising. 48 hours out from the next set of primaries, his campaign says he raised $22 million in five days, launching his biggest ad buy yet, and now netting another key endorsement from a former rival, Senator Kamala Harris, backing Biden. With a burst of new momentum, Joe Biden on the campaign trail in Missouri, turning out some of his largest crowds this election cycle. Today! 11 victories behind us. We lead the national delegates. We need a national vote. Charging into the next round of contests, hoping to keep an edge on Senator Bernie Sanders. Bernie says we got to have turnout to beat Trump. Well, guess what? We turned him out. Flush with cash, the former VP using his latest fundraising haul to launch a $12 million ad buy in six key states with a message for his rival. PolitiFact has called the Sanders campaign's attacks false. But Senator Bernie Sanders is not letting up, stepping up his attacks. Those trade agreements were a disaster. Joe was wrong. I was right. All right, we are back. Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders are in the showdown today. So once again, you and I have had quite a few conversations on uh, the, the the political climate right now. So with the Democratic primaries going on, like what are your overall thoughts and like what are your overall thoughts also on the last, you know, two people left? Like, you know, what are your feelings on it? So, uh, I have a lot of feelings on it actually. <laughs> uh, so let, let, let's go, I was actually on a show earlier today uh, and I talked about, we have to understand what's happening. Ronald Walters writes in White Nationalism, Black Interest, that the American political structure is based on what he calls the equilibrium. Mm-hmm. And that this equilibrium has always been white powers that seeks to control the political forces. Mm-hmm. He questions what happens when there are attempts to disrupt an equilibrium. Mm-hmm. 
typically the response has been white rage, white anger, white hate, white resistance. We saw this. Life right now, basically. Right. <laughs> right. So Barack Obama, imagine Barack, Barack Obama, a vinegar, a vinegar yeah. in a cylinder. Barack Obama jumps into the cylinder as soda and yeah. it explodes. Oh, yeah. And the explosion is white anger and white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And so right now, we had a diverse field of candidates running for president, you know, yes. an African-American woman, an African-American mm -hmm. man, two white women, you know, just a, mm -hmm. di a wide array of diversity. And ultimately, we're down to two and old white men. now look at us men. now, right. <laughs> two old white men representing. Which is the balance to that equilibrium yeah. that Ronald Walters writes about in 2001. Mm -hmm. Now, the choice becomes, how do we balance the equilibrium? Is it Bernie Sanders? Is mm -hmm. it Trump? Is it Biden? Yeah. Now, I don't think that Either Bernie Sanders or Biden mm -hmm. are remotely comparable to Donald Trump yeah. in terms of ideology, in terms of governance, in terms of what they mean for the political institutions. Mm -hmm. But I do think that uh, the Democratic race has been interesting because um, many people thought that this was Bernie Sanders' race to lose. Yeah, People said Joe Biden was a, a hot mess. He was a, <laughs> he, he was a walking time bomb. And what the exit polling has revealed is that there are large swaths of voters who see Joe Biden as being highly electable up against Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And as I say that many people on the Sanders count will say, well, we are the best way to beat Donald Trump. And that argument doesn't hold if you can't win a presidential primary. Yeah. Very Last time it was the Democratic Party stole it from gave it took it from hillary it and was, gave it to bernie it was all kind of bs last time yeah and so people bought that now <laughs> i never bought the notion that the democratic party cheated to took tip the race mm -hmm. here's what i and here's here's what i tell i people. gotta hear this it's gonna here's be what i tell people and i told dedrick this <laughs> imagine the way we nominate people for nominations for parties is that if you are in a party you are the favorite child mm-hmm Imagine me announcing, oh, I'm about to run for national president of Kappa Alpha Psi. Yeah. The going to be like, what? <laughs> and everybody who's a member of the club, everybody who's a dues-paying, card-carrying member of the club is going right. to work like hell right. to defeat my candidacy. Exactly. The same is with Sanders. Sanders is not a Democrat. You. He is never affiliated with the Democratic Party. So it is, it is conceivable that the people in the party are going to work to nominate someone that they know more than Sanders. Mm -hmm. Now, if he's able to compete, I believe that the election should be fair. Mm -hmm. I believe that the system should maintain its integrity. Mm -hmm. But at the same point in time, you, it's not uncommon for people to be favorites. Mm -hmm. It's just not. Um, and so with that being said, this notion of now, you know, what's the excuse this year? Are people cheating? There is no, <laughs> there is no cheating. You know, there is no Hillary Clinton around. Mm -hmm. In fact, people are doing to Biden eventually what they did to Hillary. You think so? Oh, absolutely. How I think so? this Hunter Biden mess about Ukraine mm -hmm. is an attempt to demonize Hillary. Mm -hmm. Joe Biden was the best thing since light bread when Barack Obama <laughs> named him as his vice president. Very he true. was the one who had the wisdom. Yeah. He was the foreign policy. He was going to balance the ticket. I was even, I was looking back at old tweets like from years ago about like people's response to Joe Biden. Like it was all Uncle Joe and yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like it, it was a lot nicer tone than I think overall what it is now. And people wanted him to jump into the race to challenge Hillary because they mm -hmm. didn't want Hillary. I remember all of this. And now Joe <laughs> Biden is the worst person since uh, Ross Perot. So what does that tell you about like 
American politics in general. It tells me that the Russians are very effective <laughs> at engaging in political psychology uh-huh. to paint processes in a negative light by mm-hmm. taking real facts mm-hmm. and decontextualizing them in a way to influence people to not engage in a process. Gotcha. Because you get the notion that, and, 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 and let me be clear, <laughs> I'm no fan of Joe Biden. No, no study. I was the first one to say that he deserved to be called out for his role in Arthur in the crime bill. Mm-hmm. He was the, his, in in fact, this should have been a question when Barack Obama named him as president, but we were so happy for a black president yeah. that we tucked our tails. Yes, very true. So we, we, we definitely need to contextualize that in a way where uh, his record is there. And we can be critical of Biden's uh, we can be critical of Biden's record and at the same time put pressure on him to say, what are you going to deliver as the candidate? And I think for me, that's the most frustrating thing um, because I know we all, you know, it's America. We all have our favorite, you know, our favorite who we like to be the nominee and different things like that. But overall, I've seen a cast of candidates. Like I said, we did have a very diverse uh, field of candidates this time. But once again, it ended up like American pie, like, you know, mm-hmm. old white men. And it's kind of like I feel like right now there's almost a war of power going on between young people and older people. Um, and so I, I feel like it's weird that, you know, it's almost a changing of guards right now. And I feel like that's why the, the fight is almost seems like a heightened sense because young people are like, you know, feel like we can walk into some bullshit. Old people not necessarily ready to, you know, give up the torch either. So it's kind of like you, you really feel that power struggle between old and young. And, and what do you where do you feel like that comes from? I think that um, we older people and younger people uh, sort of understand the world and process the world in different realities. Mm-hmm. I think that older people saw who older people who experienced Jim Crow, who experienced and lived through segregation, who experienced gender equality in a different way, gender gender inequality in a mm-hmm. different way, understands that the they didn't wake up as not having access to certain schools and then having access tomorrow Mm -hmm. that it occurred over a period of time and I think that our generation is we want equality and we want it now and we want it how (laughs) we want it and we're not taking anything less Mm -hmm. and I think that that's good for a power line Mm -hmm. but our institutions aren't built that way and we can talk all day about what the institutions should be mm-hmm. that's a different conversation than what they are yeah and i think the way our institutions work change is in- incremental mm-hmm. change is slow within a democracy within a democratic process mm-hmm. and i think that the younger generation has got to understand that mm-hmm. and because otherwise you get frustrated you pull out from the system and you end up in a worse predicament mm-hmm. than you are think about people say hillary clinton and donald trump was the same thing they were oh, you're, you're the same person <laughs> but her emails but her, right, and her, it was email, 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 email every single day. Yeah. And now you hadn't heard anything about an email. I mean, I mean, an email. At least scandal, not those emails. Right. <laughs> so an email scandal sounds, you know, a lot less interesting than it than it than it did. And a yeah, lot of people to bought it, A lot now. of people bought into that. Yeah. You know, and a lot of it with the last presidential election was gender. I think mm-hmm. that race and gender plays a different role. People can easily identify. Which I think was on full display last election. Um, it really made me realize how much people will like 
put themselves ahead of or, or put their put certain causes ahead of even themselves with mm-hmm. the 53%, you know what I'm saying, with, you know, we had a president who literally, like, his motto was, like, grab him by the pussy for the most part, and then you right. had women go out and vote for, you know. And had shirts guy. that he can grab my you Right, so like. it, it just put me into a whole different mindset on how the political system actually works and the power structures and what people do to keep a certain level of power. I tell people all the time, y'all gonna stop depending on <laughs> white women for your political plight. And, uh, because White women, by and large, <laughs> have have yeah. nailed black interest to the cross. Coughing every and time. voted their race every mm-hmm. single. And you think about Susan Collins, yeah. who came out. Oh, we're gonna see Kavanaugh. And it, it and baffles it. me so much. Like people, like and once again, I have to, I have to make allowance for people to have freedom to choose however they want and yes. act however they want to. But it's just baffling um, to me to see, like. Especially in this age of like powerful women and women's rights, and you know, it's like almost a whole second wave of you know, of war for women. Mm-hmm. And then to see you know some women get up and you know almost on some Handmaid's Tale type type stuff, and so it just really makes me start to understand the psychological you know aspects of, of politics also because it's quite yeah, interesting. But, but again, it goes back to the question of race. Mm-hmm. It goes back to the the question of race mm-hmm. that. White women will vote for their race over their gender. And, and, and I think people arrive at support for certain things a different way. Very but true. Ab- I have to be absolutely clear about the political environment that we <laughs> exist in. This shit has everything to do with white supremacy mm-hmm. as an ideology that is attempting to change a country that is becoming more black and more brown. Mm-hmm. And that the backlash that we're seeing happening both in our politics, mm-hmm. in the rhetoric that's happening, in state legislatures across the U.S. is all grounded in that. Mm-hmm. We can talk about people asking me all the time are all Trump supporters racist. Hell yeah! <laughs> <laughs> if you can vote for a candidate, it's real. That disparity and 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 of course, if anybody objects to this, you can cite my publication in the Journal of Race and Policy. Hey, we're gonna leave all his ad information after this. <laughs> you, you, you can you can cite that. Uh, well, we find that seventy percent of Trump supporters see that white people are discriminated against daily. Mm-hmm. Well, 70% of Trump supporters describe Latinos, blacks, mm-hmm. and other racial and ethnic uh, uh, minorities as violent. Mm. You know, And so where do these attitudes come from? It's almost existing in a totally different wor- reality from where everyone else lives. And I think that was one of the biggest things that interested me about your studies because you literally study how people, how, basically how the world reacts to black you know, political leadership. leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so even here in Atlanta, that's been very much on full display, even with the last election. Like we had a lot of, man, they almost tried to form the Avengers to stop, you know, and Mayor Bottoms, okay. you, you okay. know, um, and, you know, no matter how, because I have my own feelings about Mayor Bottoms also, but just in general, you literally could see the response to, it was almost a fight for blackness in Atlanta, mm-hmm. like the the leadership, like, and I feel like she only won the, the mayorship by 700 some votes in, mm-hmm. the, in the city of, of, of millions, you know. And Mark so, my words. So I'm Atlanta le- will have a white mayor I think within the next two elections. I, I think the next election, especially with the way that the mayorship is going now, um, cousin the whole scheme of things, she's found a way to piss off both sides. Uh, so it, it, I, I'm going to be interested to see, you know, this next election where mm-hmm. things going to get really and, interesting. And, and black mayors in particular are in a very interesting position. They are because on From the jump. one hand, in a city like Atlanta. 
you want to show where the infrastructure is improving, where mm-hmm. the infrastructure is nice, where mm-hmm. you're building new and improved homes in your city to make it look attractive. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, that comes at the expense of gentrification. Yeah. And so the people that you're replacing into these areas are typically people who cannot, uh, are typically white people. Yeah. And so they're the ones who are not going to vote for you mm-hmm. in, in the get-go. And, and so black constituents become angry and frustrated at mm-hmm. what progress is the city making, mm-hmm. which is another question that I'm interested in in when terms I feel of like that's exactly directing on my now. research is, what is the best way to evaluate black politicians? And that's, we were talking about this before the podcast about the search for almost perfect saviors and perfect leaders amongst, you know, the black community. And once again, I'm not one to everything we're ever going to have a perfect leader. And, I, you know, it shouldn't be expected. Like everybody makes mistakes. Everybody's going to probably set something to piss you off or do something that's going to make you mad or you're not going to feel uh, a certain way about it. But, like once it I'll tell you a perfect example, Mike Bloomberg. Overall, to me, trash dude. Trash. Like mm-hmm. I would never want to vote for him for anything. But as soon as he got done with his political ambitions or whatever, he stepped back and he started powering, you know, a lot of political moves with his money mm-hmm. that that need to happen. And so it's one of those things to where just letting people realize that like Sometimes people aren't all good, but they aren't all bad either. Like, everybody right. has, you know, perks. Everybody has, you know, cons. Everybody has a, a role to play. Mm-hmm. And I think even in, in as much as Michael Bloomberg represents um, in, in terms of his record on race, being mm-hmm. very troubled, mm-hmm. um, we, we need to milk his cow for what it's worth. Right. If he's going <laughs> to if, if <laughs> donate money to help be, defeat Donald Trump, I, we invite you in here, too. Right. And we invite you to the table. And I think that these are important questions that politicians don't do a really good enough job of explaining to their Mm -hmm. constituents the unique position that they're in Mm -hmm. and when they can act and when they can't act. Yeah. And so oftentimes, you know, we we sort of are are, are in between this gray area. I was on a podcast and I said, well, Barack Obama didn't do anything for black people, black unemployment Mm -hmm. went up. Yeah, we did. But we had just come out of the worst economic (laughs) recession since the Great Depression under George W. Bush. Okay. Um, tell the whole the, story. Right. So we can't just tell part of the story. Mm-hmm. You know, and oftentimes, that's why I say we are, our generation, unfortunately, love to talk about criminal justice reform. Mm-hmm. They can tell you all about Michelle Alexander's book, but they can only tell you about <laughs> chapter two. They can't tell you anything beyond <laughs> chapter two. Yeah. Because the only thing they read is about the cleanse and the crime bill and the black caucus and sentencing rates went up. Mm-hmm. What they don't tell you is that a disproportionate number of black folk who are serving you mandatory minimums are serving them on local state mm-hmm. statutes and that's not the federal level and that's another thing i want to really stress to all of our listeners um and we talk about it on all of our platforms but the importance of local elections mm-hmm. oh, absolutely. Um, because i feel like overall that's one area that conservatives totally win a lot more than mm-hmm. democrats because i think they realized a long time ago if i can take over on a local level everything else above will take care of itself mm-hmm. because if you have power on the ground floor that's all that matters Abs- yeah, you absolutely. know because and, and the things that affect your day-to-day life those are local elections yeah, yeah so yeah. right now in mississippi mike espy is on the ballot mm-hmm. running to challenge sydney Hyde smith and i'm calling Ooh. out he's gonna lose <laughs> this race yeah it, one, one reason why 
is Mississippi such a unique place. It's a unique place, (laughs) but more importantly, you need troops on the ground Mm -hmm. in the Delta. And there are in those rural pockets who are registering people, registering Mm -hmm. new voters, coming up with organ uh, turnout plans. Mm -hmm. And I don't see that at least talking to people I know on the ground in Mississippi, I don't see that happen. Yeah. And so we lose so many local races that uh, that should be competitive. Mm-hmm. But I think that this goes back to what does the Democratic Party look like at a state level? Right. And that's what people, once again, don't understand. Because I, I was trying to explain uh, to one of my friends, because they were mad because Bernie didn't campaign in Mississippi. I was like, if you understood how Mississippi works, he made a smart decision not to come to Mississippi. <laughs> um, because it, it, it's literally no way, ideally, he can convert people from, you're not going to, convert people from Donald Trump to Bernie Sanders. Yes, yeah, so I'm going to push back against that a little mm-hmm. because I actually, I got this same question mm-hmm. on a, a show earlier. Mm-hmm. I think that Bernie Sanders made a terrible posi- decision not going to Mississippi. Yeah, I got to hear this out because I and, definitely want to hear and, your And the reason I say why is think about Greenwood, mm-hmm. Itabina, Greenville, yep. Indianola. And the economic the impoverishment that's in the Delta. Mm-hmm. And what is Bernie's whole message? Yeah. We got to lift people up. People are mm-hmm. hurting. What would it mean for a white man who's looking to be president to go into those rural pockets and actually engage conversations mm-hmm. about folk in Itabina don't have access to a grocery store? Mm-hmm. People in, in, in Morgan City don't yeah. even have a local gas station. Go somewhere else and I think that gas. that was an opportunity. You may not, the question becomes how much would it have mattered? We would never know unless we see the data. But then the question is, you know, where if you can't talk about economic justice in the Delta, where can you talk about it? <laughs> very true. Very, uh, and very Bernie, true. and again, I wonder why didn't he do it? Uh, you know, he doesn't embrace identity politics, but also you can't come into Mississippi Delta talking about economic inequality without mm. talking about racial inequality. Right. Because it goes hand in hand with our sharecropping system mm. and all of that. So mm. I think he missed an opportunity. I don't think the goal should have been... what. What really concerns me with uh, Bernie supporters, particularly his white supporters, I cannot phantom how you could support a Bernie Sanders and then support a Trump. Mm-hmm. They're not even ideologically yeah, aligned. Total, total opposite. Totally opposite. Yeah. Which is, is, is a bit intriguing, interesting, and troubling to sort of just unpack what does that mean? Mm-hmm. How do you even make, how do you square that? ideologically mm-hmm. you know but yeah man it, that's, it's just really interesting man um in a little while we're about to go to uh, uh a music break so one of the things i told you like we're a creative group so one of the things i always want to do is have a song of the day for our podcast um the young lady that this song is from her name is audrey she's also a fellow mississippian um shout out to mississippi um and she came up here i think last weekend um, and she was actually at a, in a contest, a, a music contest. Um, and so, of course, you know, how as Mississippi people do, we, we go out and we support one another. And so my friends actually got me out into a club to see them perform. And um, she got up, performed in front of, uh, uh, it's like a club full of gangster dudes. And you know what I'm saying? Like, it's it's it's... It, it's the SWATs on a, a, a Saturday night here in Atlanta. <laughs> so it just, should just tell you the crowd. 
But she got up and she performed and she just blew the crowd away and she won the whole thing. Um, so I just wanted to kind of big up her, um, make sure to follow her on IG. I'll give her information a little bit later, but this is her song called Millennial Problems um, uh, by Audrey. So take a listen, and after this, we'll be right back. Jokes about pain, poking fun objective situations like life in a day. We smoke our pain away, hate to say it's the quick way to push it away. But it's only temporary, can we find a better way? I tried to make this pill easier to swallow. We say we ain't got no feelings, but that's a lot of my peers popping pills and we stay smoking gelato. I know folks afraid to fail, seems they can't live without the bottle. Tell me who we could run to, tell me who we should turn to. Some of us go to church, but most beat us with the Bible. I can only tell my truth, problems are solved at the root. Pray to God, he reveals solutions that'll revive you. Social sites got us feeling like we got it made, but we are the same. Why should we change our mask and web space? Everybody's fronting, we don't know who has the ace of spades. There's so many things that millennials have to face. And there's so many things that millennials have to face. Millennials. These are the problems of millennials. These are the problems. 